Alrighty, so this is the first ever recorded on the computer virtual Watch Your Voyage episode, and we have the founder of Off Grid Living Festival. How are you? Hopefully it doesn't drop out too much. We're just running off my um, mobile phone internet. That could be the issue, but yeah, okay. it should be all right. It's usually pretty good. Anyway, we'll give it a go. We'll talk if it doesn't yeah, work. Yeah, we'll it doesn't work. Um, yep. So what was your full name? Kate Nottingham. Kate Nottingham. So Kate, why did you choose, like how did you get involved in not only off-grid living festival, but like the idea of even off-grid living? Yeah, so we've been living off grid now for about nine years. Um, and yeah, in the beginning, I guess we didn't even think of it, you know, as having a name off grid living or anything. We just um, bought a bush block and um, came to live out here with nothing. So, you know, no power, no anything really. Um, we just had like an esky, a couple of torches, um, and there was some caravans on the block when we bought it. So at least we had somewhere to sleep straight away, which was great. Um, and then, yeah, we lived really simply for about four years. Um, the only additions we made were getting a, a giant teepee, um, and turning one of the caravans into a kitchen. So yeah, we were living really simply for a long time. So that was our intro to off-grid living and it all kind of spanned out from there. Why'd you want to do it? Um, I guess, yeah, we were drawn to living in nature um, living in a small country town where the community is really tight, um, and also like creating our own community. So our farm was always for other people to come and visit as well and do workshops and camps and, and things like that. Um, and yeah, the sustainability side of it, um, really appeals to me and the self-sufficiency, um, stuff as well. So, you know, that's a broad range of topics under, under self-sufficiency, but um, yeah, just doing it, doing it on your own and that sense of achievement. Yeah. In terms of self-sufficiency, what, what is the paradigm that kind of matters most to you for that? Is it like, Hey, we're not contributing to waste or emissions, or is it we're self-sustainable in that we don't need to rely on society to be able to actually survive when push comes to shove? Yeah, I think it's a bit of both. Um, so yeah, the, obviously, you know, the mainstream system isn't that appealing to us um, from a sustainability point of view and, and just a lifestyle point of view. Um, and then I think it's the creative side as well of being self-sufficient. Um, and it's not so much like a prepping thing for me. Um, you know, it's great if something does happen to, to be a little bit prepared, um, but that's kind of not the not the real push. It's more about, yeah, like a sense of achievement, doing it on your own. And, um, yeah, just being creative in nature and figuring out how to live, you know, without, you know, packaged food and, um, you know, things that come really easily. You can go and buy anything you want, but yeah, doing it on your own is, is much, much nicer in all regards. How are you living without packaged food? I didn't even realize that's like thing. Yeah. So we're probably not all the way there yet, especially with kids, um, but uh, that's something I want to um, achieve in the next few years. So having a look at what we are still buying in packages and figuring out how to make that um, on our own. So probably, you know, if I have a look around, the only things we're down to is kind of like muesli bars and stuff like that in packets. So we could definitely make that jump pretty quickly um, and go, I think that's, you know, a low waste um, achievement like or, or zero waste, even having a zero waste house would be amazing. Um, but also from a health point of view, I think if you remove packaged food and have to make it all on your own, you just become so much healthier without really thinking about it. Why, why do you think it's healthier? Um, well, less, less processed food, definitely. They tend to throw sugar, salt and sugar and everything to make it super yummy. So you go back for more. Um, so yeah, there's reducing, reducing those ingredients. Um, and then if you're buying everything in bulk, um, I'm not sure if this is, you know, the same for everyone, but if I buy in bulk, I tend to buy like whole foods, you know, a nicer quality organic and buying it in bulk reduces the price, which is great. So you can afford those, those better, um, better made products. Okay. And the reason for like preservatives in packaged food, right, is so it lasts longer. Yeah. 
how do you go about making sure that you have foods that last long or what type of foods now that you are doing it in the way you're doing it, are you even like interested in having last longer and how do you do it? Yeah. Yeah. So that's been an interesting journey for us because we lived for six years without a fridge. So that was, um, difficult to keep things, um, fresh. So we, you know, we would do sauerkrauts and things like that, that could live in jars and be super healthy, you know, throw that on top of anything and you've got yourself a healthy meal. Um, so yeah, there was like, you know, preservatives and not preservatives, preserves. (laughs) So doing things, preserving them, um, but then, you know, at that time with only a, an esky, we had to go shopping a lot more, which was difficult, but now we've got, um, a fridge that runs on gas. Um, so it's much easier to keep our fresh foods longer. Um, and yeah, I guess, yeah, we do make our own. that runs on gas? What? Uh, so I've never heard yeah, of Yeah, so that's it. Yeah, well, I mean, a lot of people have them in caravans. Um, so you often will find like a small one in a caravan. Um, but we've got a larger family size one um, from a company called uh, Bushman Fridges. So they make fridges for yeah for people off grid, really. Um, and although we'd like to move away from having gas, and we will be um, doing that in the next 12 months, going full electric, um, to start with, we had to go gas. So we've got gas fridge and gas hot water. And then everything else is, um, oh, and gas cooking. And then we've got a small amount of electricity, but, um, our next step will be going full electric with everything. So everything will be powered by the sun. With, yeah, with solar panels. Yeah. Yeah. Are you in a location where you have like a good battery system and you get enough sunshine all year round? Yeah. So at the moment we're living in an off-grid shed, which was temporary. It's been longer than we thought. Um, and we're currently building our real house. Um, so that's going to be a passive solar house north facing, um, and it's sort of long and skinny. So plenty of potential for solar panels on that, that northern side. Um, and that'll produce enough, uh, electricity each day for, for powering up all your modern conveniences. So we'll have electric hot water, electric cooking, um, any appliances that we want or computers and TVs or, you know, any, pretty much anything that's in a regular house, we should be able to power up. Um, and then over our first winter, it'll be sort of a test, you know, over five, six, seven cloudy days in a row, we'll be testing how that goes. But we're pretty used to living with almost no electricity. So if we have to turn a few things off, that won't be an issue for us. Is that the way it has to be? Because obviously I know that there's a rise of off-grid kind of like focus in society, but a lot of people don't want to forego modern conveniences. So is that that you may have to do that during winter just because of the setup you have, or is that just a part of off-grid living where it stands and the technology as it is now? Yeah. So I guess it's a budget thing. So for us, we've got a certain budget to stick to with our solar system um, and it will be scalable. So like if we need to add some um, more batteries or um, probably not more panels, it's more the batteries is is the thing to, to store more energy. Um, we'll do that. But based on what we're using now, so at the moment we're on a one kilowatt system, which is minute. It's, all, it's basically like no, no electricity. Um, and we'll be going up to a 23 kilowatt system. So, um, most houses, uh, like big houses where they're just using everything, don't care what's turned on, they'll be using about 43, um, kilowatts as a, as like an average that coming through on their electricity bill. So I think at 23 for us, we should be able to use, use everything when we want to, but there will be that little bit of testing in the first year to see how we go. And we'll probably record that and and talk about that and, you know, have it posted online so people can kind of see, see where it's at and what, what they'll need to have for their system. What's the price difference between like a 23 and a, and a 43? So at the moment, um, it keeps changing and it's going down, which is great. Um, or depends on what, what quality stuff you get, but say for an average system, you could say about a thousand to 1,200 per kilowatt. So you can sort of work it out that way. And there's lots of little calculators online to see what, like if you, you can click all the appliances that you would want in your house and, and how often you're using them. And it'll tell you what size system you should be getting. 
Yeah, cool, cool. Yeah, um, so anything around 30, 30 kilowatts I think would, would power up most people's life for what they're used to. Yeah, fair. Just to quickly jump back to the food thing and preserving, like what is the way that you actually preserve your food now that you you know you have the gas fridge? Um, yeah, how do you actually go about cons- preserving food without preservatives? Uh, so, well, with our orchard, we've got um, quite a few fruit trees. So, for example, like at cherry season, we'll make, um, get all of our sour cherries, turn them into a syrup so they can be jarred up and stored in the fridge for quite a few months. And because they're so delicious, we eat them within, you know, over that Christmas period. Um, so they don't sort of have to last for years and years. Um, but if they, if we wanted to have a, like a whole pantry full, um, we would then add like pectin or, or we might add sugar to, to keep it preserved for a bit longer. And then the difference between having it in the fridge or out of the fridge is, is quite different as well. So we get really hot summers here, so it's quite tricky to keep everything um, fresh in the summer if it's not in the fridge. Um, but if you have like a dark, cool pantry, that helps. Um, so yeah, making jams, um, you know, preserving our olives. Um, so those those get brined for six months. You can see there's two jars of them behind me here. Um, so those are those have just gone in the jars. They'll sit there for six months and be total, changing the salt water every couple of weeks. And then after that, they'll go into um, a a brine of vinegar and any flavors that we want to put in. And then put in the fridge, and that they'll last for they've last for years. Um, but again, we eat them quite quickly because they're delicious. Yeah, fair enough. Um, and in terms of meat, what do you eat meat, or is that part of? Yeah, we do, but we don't really preserve it at the moment. We're just about to do um, our first um, sausage making day with some other friends around the place, so we'll um, we'll butcher and make sausages, salamis, and things like that. Um, over a whole day with about um, six families uh, and this will be our first year of sort of seeing how we can go keeping those things so the sausages will have to go in a, a big shared freezer at one person's house and but the salamis and things we can bring back here to hang and that they should be fine just hanging hanging here at home yeah cool um, and in yeah. terms of the actual festival how did that come about um, so we were running small workshops here on our farm and on farms around Victoria um, called the School of Self-Sufficiency. So each um, each month we would have a four-day camp where people would come and learn eight different skills over the weekend. So teachers would come in and, and pick a topic um, that they're passionate about. So it might have been like permaculture or butchering, sourdough bread making, like lots of homesteading sort of topics. Um like growing mushrooms, things like that. So each each time it was eight different topics um, and about 30 people coming along to, to learn those things. And then that went for about two years until we decided to make it a more public event so that lots of people could come at once. Um, and that was, the, that was the Off-Grid Living Festival and that was done in a public um, park where we were sort of allowed to have, you know, thousands of people rather than just, you know, 30 or 40 um, and it just exploded in the first year. There was just so much interest in um, not just like the technology side of it and solar, but, you know, all those other topics like self-sufficiency, survival skills, bushcraft, um, homesteading and, and alternative farming as well as another really um, big topic. And then also the health and well-being area. So people were interested in how they can look after their own health and DIY health products as well. So, yeah, there's lots of diversity within the in the festival. Yeah, cool. And how did you actually go about finding all the different people for the workshops to begin with? Um, I guess over the years, we'd met a lot of people with the smaller workshops. So we already had like a really wonderful network happening. Um, but yeah, lots of lots of work calling people and, and just tracking people down all over Australia and inv- inviting them to come along. Yeah, cool. And how did you get the word out to actually get people to start coming along above 30 and 40? Because I see your Instagram uh, yeah, so is pretty good. Yeah, yeah. So um, definitely lots of social media, and every you know every now and then we get people on there going, "Ha ha!" You know, off off grid living advertised on the internet, and I'm like, "Well, actually, I am at home on my computer, off grid, just running the internet off my mobile phone." So well, it's pretty close. Do you <laughs> but, use um, Starlink? 
Uh, not yet. I've just, um, just been, I've actually heard about it because my son and I were outside one night taking him to our composting loo and checking out the stars while we're out there and 60 stars, you know, were traveling across the sky at once. And we were like, oh my God, what is this? We were like, you know, thinking UFOs or like, you know, plane attack. What is it? And then we went, came inside and, and Googled it and found out it's this Starlink, um, and then, yeah, soon after I found out that, you know, that Starlink internet's available now. So, yeah, we're going to check that out um, for our new house rather than going with NBN, which is pretty crappy, really. So I think it'll be a much better option and, and um, yeah, it'll work better into the future, I, I dare say. Yeah, fair. On one side, it's like, oh, wow, it's like the best thing in the internet world, I guess, Starlink is. But then on the other side, you're like, how many satellites are they going to be up there moving all in unison yeah. and we're not going to see the stars? Yeah, that's right. Like, so as soon as we um, researched it, like the, you know, the negative side of it was um, coming up as well on the various articles, you know, about um, people who are stargazing. It was like it ruins their, their, their sight and um, astrologers when they're doing the real close-up, you know, pictures of stars and planets and everything. And then it just gets totally destroyed by these satellites coming through. So, yeah, I think if they get as many up there as they want, that's going to be a bit of an issue. And there's, you know, space junk and um, space lore and everything that's going to come into it. Yeah, it's definitely a big, it's a big brave new world. Is there anything yeah. that has come out so far um, related to AI and off-grid living yet? Um, not that I'm aware of. I'm sure that there would be. Um, but, yeah, I haven't really delved into that um, that world yet. Like we live pretty basic and, um, we, we include the technology in our life that we sort of need. Um, but we don't go, go beyond that, um, that kind of comfort level. So yeah, but I, I dare say in the future there will be, I mean, there's like, there's already smart homes, um, but smart homes can be on or off grid. I don't think it sort of matters where the electricity is coming from for that technology. Yeah. Okay. Fair enough. Um, and you were saying that a big draw card for people is doing this different style of farming. Is Could you delve into that and tell me what that is yeah, and so why guess, people are um, interested? Yeah, a lot of the people I know that live off-grid are more interested in um, doing things chemical-free. Um, so permaculture and uh, any kind of organic farming have a pretty strong link to off-grid living. Um, but, yeah, there's people, you know, doing all kinds of, food growing, living off grid, but it seems to be more, um, more of an interest in doing it without chemicals and more of a small scale and, and community-based food sharing. How, what's the difference in terms of doing it without chemicals? Cause I know I saw this person online and they were going like things like putting newspaper down on the ground and then putting your soil on top of it and then growing all your like above ground crops like that instead of digging out a trench or whatever. Um, yeah, yeah. So that's called the no dig system, um, which is really good for people who don't have like a lot of energy or time for gardening. Um, so yeah, there's that's a, a big permaculture technique that a lot of people use. Um, but yeah, it's more about putting uh, putting inputs into the soil to, to bring that life back into the soil without just chucking chemicals down. So um, composting is a big, a big part of it. So if you go to um, a block and start trying to grow food and there's, you know, the soil's pretty old and crappy, there's nothing in it for the plants to eat, um, usually, yeah, you would start by layering up compost, mulch, um, all different organic materials that are going to break down to become nicer soils um, and, yeah, getting that really rich soil happening. So you kind of have to, like, garden your soil before you can even start growing food. Fair enough. And how long does that process take uh, it depends on where you are, I guess. Um, like I started my gardening journey in France um, on top of what was an old volcano and the soil was just incredible. Like if you, you know, drop a seed on your way up to the, up to your garden bed, you know, within a, a week or two, there'd be food growing. Um, so that was really great because um, it was super simple, just boom, good food done on the way. Um, but in Australia and especially, yeah, in, you know, some of the older soil areas and knowing whether it's clay loam or sandy soil is a big part of it um yeah definitely a lot more work goes into building up the soil to begin with so 
something like a big, um, like a large compost, like the size of a, like a pallet. So maybe like a thousand liters. Um, if you were like getting food scraps from town, from restaurants and, you know, old coffee grinds and things like that, like gathering as much old food as you can, you can, um, turn around like a hot compost in, in, in about 28 days and, and have that sort of going into your garden beds. But again, it's like a big, a big time, um, time effort. Um, so yeah, it depends what you're doing. Like if you're also working or you've got kids, um, sometimes it's better to kind of find out who's growing organic food in your area, um, and, and link up with them and and buy it direct from their farm or their farm gate or, or go to like a food share. Um, so our town of El Dorado, once a month, we have a food share, um, and it's not like a food swap, like you don't have to bring something to, to get something back. Just everybody who's growing stuff in town and has like a little bit too much brings it. It's all out on tables and you can just bring home anything you want. Um, and during COVID, we added a, um, a cupboard as well to the local bus stop. So people are just constantly putting food and preserves or anything they've got extra into that. So yeah, if you don't have time for gardening organic food, you can definitely find it um, locally, especially in the country, um, maybe in the city, um, you know, a day trip out to wherever your closest sort of country town is. Whereabouts is El Dorado? Uh, so we're in northeast Victoria, so about 45 minutes down from the border where you cross over at Albury-Wodonga. Mm-hmm. Yeah, beauty. it gets pretty cold there. Yeah, yeah, it does. Yeah, so we've got the mountains close by as well, so it's about an hour to, to get to the snow from here. So yeah, winter can get pretty cold. Yeah, beauty. Um, and in terms of all the different vendors you have, uh, what would you say is like the best package people could get to do a full off-grid plant? Um, do you mean like what's like the ultimate life? setup? Yeah, like what's the ultimate setup of like having the off-grid living with all the luxuries, yeah, so with I everything? Think, um... Yeah, I think if people were to sort of go like, right, I'm going to totally redesign my life, go off grid, I think they should look at like, you know, the, the heading of high tech, low impact. So finding that balance between like the technology they need to cover all their creature comforts that they can't live without, but then having a look at how much they can lower their impact on the earth, um, you know, individually or as a family um, or, or as a community. So um, I would be looking at solar for sure um you know all electric appliances um heat pump hot water systems if you're in a place that's hot really hot or really cold heat pump um air, air conditioners with inverters in them to to like bring that power consumption down but still get the comfort um and then yeah getting a solar system that that can can run everything electric electrically so no gas um and then you know, once you're comfortable or, you know, as you're getting comfortable, start looking at upskilling. So learning how to grow food, um, learning how to make your own tools or repair your own tools or, or repair anything really. So you can get the longest life out of it. Um, learning how to make your own, you know, herbal remedies and things like that to look after your own health, um, and having like a health and wellbeing regime. So you might, um, find that you live go and live off grid and then you find you're like lonely or you're like not getting your physical exercise or something anymore. So how are you going to bring that into your life? It might be bushwalking and joining up with a local community group or um, having, you know, dinner parties and inviting random strangers around from the community. So making sure like you're still got your um, community connections. Um, and then another, you know, big part of it for a lot of my friends is um, the bush skills and the survival skills. So, um, you know, how, how far can you go without creature comforts and, and what can you start creating on your own? Can you make fire without matches or can you go camping in the bush for three days with nothing? So those kind of off-grid challenges can be quite fun as well. What's the longest you've gone off-grid? Uh, off, off-grid? Um, I guess it would be when I was hiking. So that was a four-day hike um, with next to nothing. So yeah, that, that would probably be it. But, um, oh, longest I've gone off grid is nine years, I guess, because I've been living off grid for nine years. <laughs> yeah. But in terms of one of those challenges, like how did yeah, you go so about four days off grid? Like what did yeah. you have and how'd you go? So we just had, um, small backpacks. So only, I think we only bought like rice and beans and, um, really small, um, sleeping bags. And then one person bought a tarp. So we were able to create 
like a little tarp to sleep under at night, um, which was good because we got a little bit of rain. Um, but yeah, otherwise it was just us and our water bottles pretty much. So that was really nice. Did you have to make your own fire? Uh, yeah, but I think we probably did bring, I reckon we bought a lighter. <laughs> I don't think back then we would have tried, even tried to make our own fire. But um, we, one of the workshops we did run on our farm was called Wolfpack, and that was a 20-day um, bush skills and survival skills camp. Um, so during that time, we had people coming in and teaching, um, again, about 30 people those skills over 20 days and, and practicing those skills the whole way through. Yeah, beauty. Um, and in terms of the different home remedies using herbs and stuff like that, what what are some good ones that... Yeah, that's something that I'm not, I don't specialize in that yet. Like I don't really use, um, many conventional, um, you know, drugs, (laughs) you know, prescribed drugs or go to, go to GPs and things like that. Um, but yeah, I guess if my health took a turn for the worse, I'd be looking at herbal remedies and, and what I could, um, use. But yeah, I mean, we, um, Again, sauerkraut's a big one that's in our diet because you get all of your um, probiotics and everything from that. Um, And then herbal teas. But yeah, I'm not really taking or making anything for any kind of chronic illness. But definitely if I had something, I'd be looking into into what I could do naturally first. Even just colds? Surely you've had colds over this time period. Oh, yeah. So yeah, my... um, my one thing I take whenever I'm sick is apple cider vinegar. So I just drink it, drink it, drink it like it's going out of fashion and it seems to work really well. Um, but yeah, if I've got a cold, you know, anything you can get from from the chemist is just a bit of a Band-Aid. Um, it's not actually going to fix it. So what's the yeah, point? Yeah, What did you think of, of COVID and the vaccine given this is skepticism um, of... Pharmaceuticals. Yeah, in so we were um, pretty on the fence for that for a long time as it was all sort of developing and um, we, were, we were back and forth like what to do. Um, in the end, we decided not to go down the vaccine route, but um, still had a lot of respect for people that did. So we never sort of jumped too far on the bandwagon for one side or the other because I didn't really like the way it was splitting communities and, and families. Um, I think that's the worst thing that happened during COVID. Yeah, how do you go about, obviously in Victoria, it's, it, I'm, I'm from SA. I'm not in SA right now, I'm in Gold Coast, but yep. in SA, it was pretty chilled. Like we didn't have lockdowns and stuff like that. So obviously being on a farm, you're locked down, you had a lot of space still. But yep. do you find that the the government or the police force in your local area was like kind of on your case about? getting vaccinated yes, or like um, restrictions? We personally didn't notice it much because, yeah, we were like, we love our life, we love our family and to, to be told to stay at home was like, yeah, okay, cool, whatever. <laughs> we, were, we were quite happy and our kids uh, hadn't started school at that time um, and we were part of like a homeschooling um, community. So, yeah, we were, we were, we were happy and comfortable um, but, yeah, a lot of my friends lost their jobs um, and, and some of them still can't get their jobs back who decided to not get vaccinated. So, yeah, and, and like I said, a lot of people um, lost contact with their families if they had decided to go one way or the other. So that that was the biggest impact that I saw. But in terms of living, um, yeah, we kind of almost enjoyed it a bit, like, you know, a home holiday. But I could definitely see how it was hard for other people. Yeah, fair. And how big's the property that you guys are on? Uh, so we're on 20 acres and it's surrounded by national parks. So yeah, it's got a really beautiful nature vibe about it. And we share the property with lots of animals. So we've got about 80 kangaroos each night cruising around and all kinds of birds and wombats, koalas every now and then, echidnas, the works. It's really nice. That is very cool. Do you hunt at all? Uh, no, not yet. Um, we've talked about whether we want to sort of start doing that. Um but yeah, it's a bit of a funny one. Like one time someone came to hunt on our property and, um, got a kangaroo and uh, yeah, I felt a bit weird about it because we've always watched the kangaroo mob, like they're a family and you can see like there's, there's this tight knit little animal community and to take, take one away just to eat it was a bit hard. So I'm not too sure like how we go with that. <laughs> oh, can you hear me all right now? Yeah, yeah, I can hear you. I said, if. Yep. 
did you feel like you were breaking up the family? Oh, sorry. I thought you said I was breaking up. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, I did. Yeah, we felt like I was breaking up the family for sure. And yeah, being a mother, like even taking animal children away, it's like real heart, quite heartbreaking. So I don't think we would um, hunt unless it was like a real survival situation. And, you know, if shit hit the fan and we we felt like we had to, to get meat. But yeah, at the moment, no. Yeah, okay. Do you just have neighbours that have like farm setups with the lamb and yeah and... so we've got yeah got friends who are um producing their own meat which we can share in and then um like I said we're doing the the sausage making day soon um and then yeah we just buy buy meat locally there's one um one free range producer um so we get ham and turkey um and bacon from them uh and that's really nice and then yeah anything else we could could live without it if we want to or, or if we want to treat ourselves, you know, especially in the winter, making up a nice stew or something, we can get that locally too. Yeah, fair. The In terms of like why you moved off grid in general, and obviously you're very family orientated, do you feel like city living just didn't like promote the ethos to be really family orientated? Yeah, I, just, I cannot imagine raising kids in the city. Um, yeah. I just can't, I can't fathom it. Tell me about your, your working out of that. Cause like I personally, I'm like, yeah, I get it myself, but I want to hear how you kind of contextualize it. Yeah. I guess, I don't know, like concrete jungle. Like I don't, you walk out, you the houses all back to back next to each other, which is okay. If you've got cool neighbors and your friends and everything, and then you come outside, you're on the street, on the concrete cars everywhere like quickly racing from one place to another, you know, busy schedules, um, even schools like, you know, schools where there's like 60 kids per classroom compared to here. My son's just um, joined the local school, which has a total of 27 kids there. Um, and like all the kids from age, um, you know, prep through to six are, are friends with each other and, and play together. So yeah, that um, school community, I can't see that working for us in the city with such a big amount of kids in one one room yeah it's just more wholesome and I think um yeah I think the big thing for us is the people are friendlier um so we notice like whenever we drive from El Dorado to the city that you get to this point where people stop waving to each other like in the in cars as they're driving driving past or you know you jump out of the car to grab a few supplies on your road trip and and people have a chat to you and you know you'll get stuck for half an hour talking to people and then you kind of hit this this part where you're almost in the city and it's like okay conversation's gone no smiling no waving like yeah it's just not as friendly yeah fair I have a friend from China and he was just like there's so many people that nobody can afford to even care about each other because it's such a rat race so if somebody's like you know I don't know if you ever saw that video that went viral of the person that was dead on the street and it, it was like a a CCTV camera of like 12 days and nobody even checked on oh, wow. this like person dead on the street. Yeah. Just... Wow. Yeah, that's that's crazy. And I can see it. Like, I mean, if you try and wave to everyone walking down the street in the city, you could just be walking along with your hand in the air, getting high fives. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Hopefully getting high fives. But, um, yeah, like here, um, a good example is one day I had to pull my car over because um, it was raining so heavy that I couldn't see where I was going. So I pulled over um, and then somebody within about two minutes, one of the local El Dorado guys pulled over in front of me, got out of his car in the pouring rain to knock on my window and say, just say, oh, are you okay? Do you need a hand? <laughs> That's awesome. So, yeah, if someone pulls over with a flat tire or just needs help or whatever, there's yeah, that helps always there. Yeah, fair. That's it just I love that. I love that. And that's why I'm talking to you, right? Because I think off grid living is the bee's knees. I think it's great. I think we need to decentralize our communities whilst not losing all the, you know, amenities that we love. Because I kinda yeah. am from the vein of like, let's be a high energy society. So then we can build, we can innovate. We, you know, there's a lot of benefits obviously from energy and what we can do with it, you know, AI revolution coming its way. Now you could have like little bots doing your work for you and building and creating things and then focusing on like 
the parts that a human could do, which, you know, the innovation, the creativity around it. I think yep. we're moving in a cool way, but definitely the off-grid, like, ethos of, of just being family and being community is missing out of society. And we've, we're seeing that in so many ways. You know, families, look at the divorce rates. Like, have you found that being out in nature and being off grid and having this community lifestyle, like, how do you think that has actually just affected your relationship with your significant other? Um, I would say it definitely helps in terms of that we don't have to work so much. Like, I think if we were living in the city, we would both have full-time jobs just to, probably just to pay rent or mortgage or whatever it is. Um, so living out here, we've had a lot of freedom to just be together and start creating the life that we want. So in the beginning, um, we didn't work at all for a few years or little bits of work here and there, um, but we just didn't have any expenses. So we were able to like, you know, just enjoy this land that we'd moved to and, and just start building it up in the way that we wanted to enjoying time together. Um, so yeah, I can't sort of see that happening. Although, oh, we, we did meet in the city. So yeah, there was, there was one year or one or two years that we were together in the city. Um, yeah, but yeah, the lifestyle is incredibly different out here. Like looking back, um, looking back to that. I feel like a lot of people, their instant reaction would go, but don't you get bored? Not so, at all. No. <laughs> so how, how do you not get bored? You know, everybody's on the eternal scroll and dopamine constantly you sound like you've kind of unplugged from all of that like how do you how do you like yep. remain not bored I guess it depends on what uh what things you get your enjoyment out of um oh I've lost you can you still hear me I've lost I visual on you. you I can oh, still yeah, hear cool. you yep. yeah so I guess it depends on what you enjoy like if you love going to like the theater and live music um you know every night that's uh, tricky to achieve in the city, uh, in the country. Um, but, you know, if you enjoy bushwalking or um, paragliding or, um, you know, any kind of nature-based activities, um, yeah, it's all, it's all out here. And uh, I would say I've probably got more and better friends in the country and more diverse um, age range of friends as well, which is lovely. Um, and then having kids out here, um, you know, we, we're friends with all their families and anything, anything we want to do with them, nature-based stuff, they totally enjoy, you know, so we might just go for a walk locally down the creek and they end up playing for an hour in the water, making up their own games and everything. So yeah, there's, um, there's all of that, but it's probably an adjustment if you went straight from the, straight from the city to the country. Um, but you know, it's like a country holiday you know, how many amazing things do you do if you go, go to the country for, for a weekend or whatever? It's, it's like that every day if you want it to be. Yeah. And with the off-grid living festival growing in popularity, like what kind of people have you seen coming to the festival and spoken with? Yeah. So in the beginning, um, it started in 2018 and I think, you know, off-grid culture and the term off-grid has changed so much just in those few years. So I think it was more of an alternative crowd in the first year, like people who were already kind of doing um, things that were within those topics. But now we're getting like a real mainstream crew coming through who are like interested in making moves to um, towards doing those things. Um, and those things could be anything within the festival. So, um, you know, I, I would there's 200 exhibitors and you know, up to 50, 60 workshops, all totally different. So people might be coming for one thing or another. Um, but there's a much bigger mainstream um, move towards off-grid or sustainable living um, now we're seeing. Um, and again, all different age groups um, and, yeah, people from full alternative living through to, you know, your your average show. Do you get a fair bit of, like, grey nomads coming out or is... Yeah, definitely. It, and then yep. the younger versions are doing, like, the van or the four-wheel drive where they're just, like, young and doing it? Yep, absolutely. So people living in tiny homes, like more the younger crew, um, and yeah, cruising in vans um, or parking up in vans on properties and stuff. And yeah, definitely grey nomads um, are coming, yeah, sometimes just for the experience because it's a really super fun day out and there's, you know, people there that they can relate to um, and others are coming along to get 
more tips to make their off-grid life, um, you know, better or different or, or just connect. And given that you run this, do you find yourself like doing heaps of these different workshops? I wish. I wish I could. I, I would love to have a second version of myself so I could go and enjoy the whole festival for the weekend. But no, I'm flat out during the festival, um, just, yeah, working. Um, yeah. So I'm not just, you know, on the computer until the festival's on and then I enjoy it. I'm just flat out for like, you know, the month leading up, the month after, and then basically for the whole year organizing it. So I get to enjoy chatting to people from off grid, um, you know, lifestyles all year as we're leading into it. But yeah, I really wish that I could enjoy it myself. <laughs> yeah. And so why, why, why do the festival? Um, well, to inspire people. So, um, yeah, we just, we love this kind of lifestyle and I love inspiring people to live more sustainably, um, was the first kind of draw card. Um, and yeah, we're just so passionate about it that we, we want to share, share it with people. And now that we're seeing more and more people are interested in it, I like, I feel like it's, you know, my job to keep it going. So it's almost not a choice now. Like it's such a loved festival. I, you know, I couldn't cancel it because people, they just love it so much. Yeah. Beautiful. Beautiful. And in terms of some of the companies that you have here, just going to go, what would you say? Cause I know you've got like a full RV off grid campers themselves. Can you still hear me? I just yep. heard a bit. Yeah. Okay. Um, yeah, you've got like full off grid actual camper vans and you've got battery companies and you've got hoist systems. Like what is, uh, some of the more innovative technologies that come through to you guys? Yeah. So we get now, um, some of the bigger, um, solar companies. So, you know, again, in the first year, it was more like a DIY kind of vibe, you know, people felt like if you wanted to go off grid, you had to do everything on your own, like setting up your solar and everything. But over the last um, six years, there's now so many wonderful electric companies that can help people set that up, um, you know, to to Australian standard and safety as well as um, to any budget really. So a lot of them are happy to, to create a small system and then, you know, all the way up to a massive system that will power a huge luxury home. Um, so yeah, that helps available and they do things like, um, you know, huge solar arrays, um, on trailers that's got all the batteries and equipment underneath and you can take that anywhere you go. So if you're setting up a bush block or you've got a tiny home, or if you're on the, on the move, um, you can take your whole energy system with you. Um, so that's, that's something that's really cool, like a mobile, a mobile energy system. Uh, and then, yeah, we've got lots of electric vehicles coming through and this year for the first time we had secondhand electric vehicles for sale, which is something the Australian market's been waiting on. Yeah, cool. Um, and in terms of the different houses that are built, purpose built for off grid, is there different types of building techniques or things, you know, like insulation and cost saving and all that kind of stuff? Or is yeah, it just the same so. style? If you were to build a new house. No, yeah, if you were building a new house and you knew that you were going to go off grid, um, definitely you would be wanting it to be passive solar. So that's all about orientating it towards the sun. So our Australian northern sun. Um, so in the summer, the sun will go you know, directly above the house, um, up and over, but in winter it'll move forward to the north and be traveling along the front of your house. Um, if you're north facing. So during the peak of winter, you're still capturing all that sun, um, into your solar system. But then if you've also got all your glass doors and windows along that side, um, because the sun's lower, it'll be still coming in through the windows in winter and heating up your house. So often you won't need any, any heating at all. And then in summer, because it's higher, it's going up and over the roof and not coming in those windows and you're keeping it cool um, in the summer. So some really great designed um, passive solar homes, they might only put the fire or the heating on for like, you know, a month or, or less in the in the year, only on those really extreme days. So, and then of course, to add to that, you, if you're capturing the heat, you've got to hold it in. So 
um, insulation is key. So it might be, um, it might be just your regular kind of insulation, or you might go for like hemp or straw bale. Um, and then you've got, you know, rammed earth, which is great for say behind a fireplace, because that'll soak up the heat into, into that really dense, um, rammed earth wall. And then if the fire then goes out, it'll push that heat into the house. Um, so yeah, there's lots of techniques in keeping your house cool or warm, depending on the season, um, to make sure that you don't have to use extreme amounts of gas or electricity or firewood, um, to, to keep it all comfortable. Yeah, cool. And are these, cause obviously there's a lot to think of, but in terms of just like comparing to a regular built house, is it cost competitive not just in the the long run of all the energy savings, but in just the initial fit out? Or is it like, hey, you have to spend a fortune to get a great off-grid house and then you'll get it back in the long run? Yeah, so the house we're building at the moment is a really good example of that. Um, so had I have gone with like all the just standard stuff, like, you know, um, not upgrading to, to thermal break aluminium windows, which is basically not letting any heat or cool come in through the frames, um, double glazed windows, um, upgrading all the insulation in the walls and the roof. Um, you know, those are the main things like orientation doesn't cost you anything. It's just designing the house in the right direction. Um, but then you can go, you can go a bit further. Oh, back to, you know, what we've done, I would say it cost us probably about an extra, probably 30,000 to, to like, to boost it up, to make sure it's going to perform well. Um, but now there's, there's a new, um, standard coming through. So at the moment, uh, houses have to be six star, like legally, like as a, as a base limit. But I think by November this year or a little bit later, they've got it, they have to be seven star. Um, so there's a new rating coming through, which is, um, going to mean that all those volume builders that are just like just busting out houses that aren't performing well at all. Um, they're going to have to like really pick up their game and figure out how they're going to make those houses perform much better. Um, and if they're, you know, if they're in a suburb where the houses are back to back and they can't actually orientate them to the north, I think there's going to be a little bit of a struggle for a while to figure out how to make those houses perform to a seven star rating. Yeah. Okay. So the seven star rating is predominantly about just energy conservation. Yep. Yep. So it's yeah. about, yeah, cooling and heating your home, um, to make sure that you don't have to have outrageous amounts of power to, to keep it comfortable. Um, and then there's a few more things. I think the rate, the whole rating system is sort of changing. So at the moment, um, they don't, if you've got an all electric home and it's running off solar, you don't sort of get extra points for that. But I think this new rating will include that. So people will be able to offset things. So if they um, building a house that cannot be orientated to the north because of the block they're on, they could probably get more points um, and, and offset that by having salt like heaps more solar panels and batteries as a backup. Yeah, cool. Mm. Cool. Very so good. yeah, it's um, I'd say it's yeah slightly more expensive, but it doesn't have to be like hugely more expensive. Yeah, and is the the best material? Obviously, you're saying a lot of glass. Um, and yeah. then this rammed earth for like fireplaces and stuff like that. Are you still doing like timber framing for everything else? Is that still what's the best yeah, with the so sheet roof? Yeah. Timber frame or steel frame, depending on where you're living, I think makes a difference. But then if you're like one of the best, best natural materials to work with is hemp. Um, so that's, um, hemp that's all chopped up and mixed with like a lime, um, like a wet lime material. And then it's, it's packed into, um, two panels to create the wall. Um, and it's, it's insulative, um, rodents hate it, termites hate it. Um, and it's also fireproof. So that's one of the best natural materials to use, but, um, it's kind of slow going in Australia. Like there is definitely hemp houses being built. Um, but it's yet to become something that's like, you know, you see every, every 10th house or something built with hemp. Um, so yeah, hemp so it doesn't have out. economies of scale yet. 
Yeah, yeah. And because we're not growing it here in Australia a lot, so um, I think it's only been about 12 months since um, people have been, al- have been allowed to grow hemp for building purposes in Australia. So I reckon in about probably 10 years, it'll be um, much easier to do. Um, and also getting ticked off from council for permits and everything, like you've got to prove um, that the material should and can be used at the moment as an individual, whereas it should just be part of the Australian standard. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So it sounds like there's just a lot of loopholes to go through to even use it. Yeah. And it's, I think we're moving in that direction, but it'll take a while. Um, so like straw bale and mud brick have been the most, um, commonly used natural building material so far and, and also rammed earth. But I think hemp's going to, going to smash them all in the next 10 years. I mean, it makes sense, right? The, the density of growing hemp is very small and the amount of water it takes is very small. So I guess yeah, it would just come down to, to processing um, plants. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, the only processing plants I know in Australia are just like sort of backyard operations at the moment. Um, and I think a lot of the hemp builders are still buying their hemp and lime in from France. Um, so, yeah, once we can get it all local, it'll bring the cost down. And, and if we can get it into the Australian building standards, uh, then people won't have to you know, do all their own engineering documents and everything to prove that it's going to be fine. Is there other places in the world that are full functioning using hemp that are a bit of a gold standard? Um, I'm not too sure what the best ones would be. I'm thinking it's probably France because that's where they're getting their best materials from. Um, but yeah, I'd have to look into that. I'm not too sure. Yeah. Okay. Uh, beauty. All right. Um, well, I've got to run. So... Thank you so yep. much for your time. I really appreciate yeah, no it. No worries. Great. At to some chat. point, I'm keen to come out to this festival. Yeah, yeah, that'd be good. Where are you based generally? Are you in Victoria or South Australia? I'm South Australia, yeah. Yep. But I'll have to do a road trip. I'll come across. Yeah, yeah. Well, we, get, we get people coming now from WA and Darwin and all kinds of things, and they come and camp out for the whole week. So, yeah, people are coming from all over Australia. Yeah, beauty. Well, thank you very much. And yeah, where can you. we find you online? What are your handles? Uh, so offgridevent.com.au and then um, slash offgridliving for anything else or offgridliving festival, sorry. Beautiful. Well, thank you. Good one. Have a good day. See ya. You too. Bye.